our hearts aren't always ready to receive uh, God's word. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that we have your word. We, we're not left to guessing everything. We're not left to guessing what's true about you and as a result what's true about us or what we're supposed to do in response. Uh, you, you don't um, leave us in the dark with regard to the basic things that we need to know and according to which we need to live. But our hearts aren't always ready for that, Father. So we ask that you would use uh, this time right now to massage our hearts, to receive and to yield to your truth so that we can receive the blessing of your truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the uh, difficulties of preaching through a book, preaching a, a book of the Bible and preaching each passage one at a time in succession, one of the difficulties is you don't get to dodge the hard stuff, right? You don't get to dodge the hard stuff. Increasingly, um, churches give into a temptation to sort of curate certain truths in Scripture to garner attendance and to allow people to leave church feeling like, man, that was so good. I feel so pumped up. But every passage of Scripture doesn't necessarily do that. Some passages of Scripture hit hard, and they're difficult to swallow. They're difficult to even understand. But it doesn't make them untrue. Numerous times I've watched the documentary on black holes, and each time I leave going, I have no idea really what is a black hole. It doesn't matter who narrates it. Uh, it doesn't matter who the professors brought together to explain it. It could be just my puny little brain, but I, I don't get it, and I don't think they fully get it either. It doesn't mean they don't exist. And so if we only embrace truths that are easy, uh, we're left with a lot of things that are true that we ignore just because it's hard. It's hard to grasp it theologically it's hard to grasp it with our hearts because it's a hard truth. And today, we're going to be faced with the hard truth about death. And it's another topic that us preachers, we tend to only address at funerals. Because outside of a funeral, really, who, who goes, you know what? Let's do death today. Let's do death. Let's talk about death. What a bummer. It's already kind of dingy out. It's already fall. Leaves are on the floor, we're getting a little sad that we're entering this winter season. The last thing we need is a sermon about death. But if we only save that topic for moments where we have to deal with that topic, like at a funeral or a memorial service, we can't really open the floodgate on the topic because we have to be pastorally sensitive to the situation and there are some things that we're not ready to hear because our hearts are in such mourning and in such grief. We're not ready to hear the full uh, import of what God has to say about death. And so it's important to talk about topics like that outside of those moments where it's really hard to hear it, even though it's hard to hear it here. I think we do have to pause when Scripture addresses it and let Scripture talk to us about it because it is a problem, isn't it? It is a problem. You look around your life and you see people who are living their lives however they want to live it. They could give, uh, they, 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 they could care less about 
God, who he is, and how they're supposed to live. And they're living it up. They don't have cancer. They don't, they, they don't get into car accidents that take their lives. You have people that are quite successful. And then you've got people in your life that, man, they're good people. And they're taken away from you young. That's how death stings. As we look at this passage, Paul wants to address death. He, in the first four chapters of Romans, he talks about the fact that everybody is under God's wrath. And you remember he says, even the people that have God's word, they've, they've been exposed to scripture, and they know what God says do and don't do, and they don't really do it. What about people who didn't have church, didn't have scripture, didn't go to a synagogue, didn't, right? They don't have that special revelation. They have wrath on them too because the little that they do know through nature and the work of the law that's written on their hearts, they have a conscience. You don't have to be a Christian to have a conscience. The tribe member out there who doesn't have the Bible translated in their language knows it's wrong to spear your neighbor's pig for tonight's roast instead of your own pig. They know that's wrong. And so everyone everywhere is guilty for that. But then he provides the solution. That God wasn't content to just let his wrath rest on everybody, the insiders to the truth, the outsiders to the truth. He wasn't just content to just let it be that. But he took the weight of that wrath and put it on his son Jesus Christ so that those who place their faith in Jesus can escape that wrath. Now that's awesome news. That is awesome news. And after the first four chapters, right at the top of chapter 5, he talks about how God demonstrated his love by doing that. He demonstrated that he loves you by taking that wrath that was supposed to be placed on you and putting it on Christ so that you can, through faith, be covered under the umbrella of Christ's sacrifice. It is by faith through Jesus Christ that any of us can be saved because left to our works, we all lose. That's chapters 1 through 5. Top of chapter 5. Now what he's going to do is zoom in to that truth, that problem and solution, that wrath, and then the, the solution to the wrath. He's going to zoom in in a way where it, it's like talking about the, the most profound things of theology, and I am brought right to my, my end. Uh, if I ever feel weak as a preacher and unable to serve you, it's passages like this. I don't know everything. I don't think Paul gives us everything. He just touches on it enough to almost frustrate us like those black hole documentaries. You know it's there, and it's something, and it's kind of scary, but we don't know exactly what it is. We just know enough to know it's there. But if you press those professors hard enough, they have to just be like, I'm in the realm of guessing now. It's not going to answer every issue, every question that we can ask, but it's going to give us just enough to bother us some. Please join me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, your Bible is, kind of has two halves. The Old Testament is the bigger portion. New Testament, when you flip to the New Testament, you've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke has a second part too called the book of Acts, and then the very first book after Acts is Romans. Uh, so turn in your devices, or if you have uh, paper copies, join me in Romans chapter 5, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses 12 to 21, put it all out in front of us, okay? Put all the verses out in front of us, and I'm going to back up and talk to you about why it's so difficult 
and how I think we're supposed to read these verses. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, and we'll take it through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The passage tinged with such hope and such good news, but it's also freighted with bad news that's difficult to ingest. So let's just, let's just get to it. Right there in verse 12, that's the difficult verse that theologians and scholars and exegetes and pastors and preachers and Christians throughout the history of the church have hemmed and hawed about and gone back and forth about. It is really the offense of the gospel. Paul is claiming that all are subject to death because on account of Adam, all sinned. You're like, yeah, that's not fair. I wasn't there. He's like, you kind of were. You get how that's difficult. We're one-for-one one correspondence. You, you're blaming me for sin I didn't do. That's not fair. You should only blame me for sin I did. If there's sin that somebody else did, blame them for that. That's true in the normal course of things. But when it comes to Adam, there's an exception. And Paul is claiming that there is a sense in which through Adam's action of biting that fruit, when God said, here's the one tree you don't eat from, you'll have life, you'll have eternal life, but if you eat from this one tree and break that one rule, you're demonstrating you want to be God, you want to be me, you don't want to be under my leadership, and that action, it's not that the, sin, the fruit itself is sinful, it's what it represents. That action means I'm casting off God as being over me. And when you do that, you break your, your deal with me. Now, theologians argue about whether that was an actual covenant. But for the sake of argument, I think it makes sense to call that a covenant. God made a deal. Here's the rules. You do this, you get life. You do that, you get death. And what Paul is saying is, you understand how that happened for Adam, 
But what you need to understand is when that happened for Adam, it happened for you. Because when Adam did that, you did that. Now, this is the stumbling block that has people all twisted in knots. And it makes sense because the first thing that wells up inside your heart, if not your mind, is that's not fair. I was not there. Now, we can try to wiggle out of it and say, you can't be saying that we sinned in Adam. It has to mean something else. And so he starts this comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ, but he doesn't get to Jesus Christ yet. He starts the comparison, and then he takes a time out to prove it. We're not ready for the Jesus Christ part yet because we're not ready for the Adam part yet. We don't agree with the Adam part, so we're not going to agree with the Jesus part. Or what he's saying, what he's implying is, you want to agree with the Jesus part. Oh, I love Jesus. He's our hope. He saved me. But you're not really clear on what he saved you from. So I've got to take a time out for a few verses and explain and prove that this Adam thing is true so that you can get ready for the Christ thing, which is not going to reappear until verse 18. So he starts a comparison in verse 12 and doesn't return to it until 18 because he knows it's a hard concept and he knows it's difficult for us to swallow. So he uses careful language and that on the face of it, and even if you dig and try to pry underneath it, He's saying what he's saying. Where people really get tripped up, and myself included, is the end of verse 12. Because all sinned. If he kept it in the past, Adam did something that got us all in trouble. We could kind of agree with that. But when he says, Adam did this, and so death reigned, and death affects everybody, because all sinned, oops, he didn't go back to Adam, he involved us in it. That's the problem. Now, some people want to change. He's not really saying because. He's not really saying because. Uh, Any of you who know more than one language, at least just a little bit, and have ever been asked to translate something for somebody else, even if it's off a menu, you understand the difficulty of translation. There are different words you can use for this word. This word can mean different things. Even in English, we have one word in one context. It means one thing. That same exact word in another context means something else. In fact, we do it so much, English is a harder, one of the harder languages probably to learn. It's just there's so many different ways to take things. And so some would say, well, it's not really because all sin. It, it, it means something else. But if you look at different translations, the ESV is what I'm reading. Many of you have the ESV in your hands. Of course, this originally was written in Greek, so we're working with English translations. The ESV, uh, the CSB, the NASB, the NIV, some of you use, I know, the NRSV, a lot of Reformed and Catholics use the NRSV, the RSV, all say because. The King James says, for that all sinned. I think that works too. Adam sinned, and for that all sinned. Not as a result, because Adam sinned, we all also choose to make our own decision, but rather because Adam made that decision, you already made the decision. That's what's hard. So some will say, well, yes, because all sin, but what he means is that after Adam made that choice, we all end up making the choice. After Adam, he made the choice, and we all make the choice. The problem there is, it sounds like it leaves a possibility that some of us don't make the choice. But we know as you read through Romans and the rest of the whole Bible, not any of us ever makes any other choice except to do the same thing. And rebel against God. 
And so I don't think he's saying because Adam did it, we all potentially do it. He's saying because Adam did it, all of us do it. And some will say, well, he, Paul is, has a middle step, a middle piece in between there that makes it make sense. He just doesn't say it. And that middle piece is Adam, not just Adam sinned, we sinned, but Adam sinned, and because of his sin, every person that's born from Adam inherits this corrupt nature that gives us the potential to sin, and we all give into that potential. And he's just, he's just kind of leaving out that middle part, but logically, of course, that middle part has to be there because Adam sinned, we all we're born sick, and that sickness bends us towards sin, and then we actualize it when we sin that first time, whatever that first time was, that age where you actually to told your parents, no, boom, there it is. That, that first time you, your, your sibling was playing with your toy, and you're like, mine, there it happened. Up until that point, you just had inherited corrupt nature, but you didn't, you didn't actualize it. It wasn't guilty for you until you punched that kid in the play box, kicked your teacher in the shin. Whatever you did, that, that first thing that was just a clear expression of your sin, that, boom, that made it clear for you. But that's problematic. That's problematic because that's not what he says. So for those of you who want to nerd out, lick the tip of your pencil or pen, or make sure your Apple pencil is charged. Seven reasons why that's not true. Okay? I, I think this is important, and we're going to spend most of our time on this, and then the rest of the verses, I think, click into place if we resolve the tension that we see in verse 12. Seven reasons why I think what Paul is saying is not that Adam sinned and gave us the potential to sin, and then we all do it, but rather that when Adam sinned, there's some sense in which we also sinned in that action. Now, we can talk about, wow, that's difficult, it's unfair. Well, let's hold on to that, and let's just deal with what he's actually saying. Seven reasons why I think it needs to be understood that in Adam's action, we sinned. The first reason is because it breaks the parallel that he's doing. You see there in verse 12, that he starts with sin and ends with death, and then starts with death and ends with sin. Right there, just in that verse. You see that? Sin came into the world through one man, and what was the result? Death. And then he starts with the result and goes back up to the cause again. So the cause, sin happened, death came in the middle of the sentence, and then he says, death came, and he goes back to the cause because of sin. Now, for that to work, that back and forth to work, there has to be a connection between what Adam did and what we did. Because the correlation is that this is what causes death in the world. This is why death is here. Because of something that happened in the garden. And it's not that death continues because we keep doing it. If we were just disciplined enough to stop sinning, if we just raised our children on an island where they didn't watch TV and they weren't exposed to TikTok, then maybe we can stop death from happening because that was Adam's fault. If we keep quit making it our fault too, then potentially we could have life. But that's not how it works when Paul says sin caused death, death because of sin causing it. That means Adam's sin that caused death for everybody and this death that is everybody's is caused by sin, it's a, re it's a restatement. And these two things can't be different Otherwise, the, the connection is broken. So what he's saying is, 
Something happened in the garden that caused death for everybody, and death hits everybody because we were there too. It wouldn't make sense for him to break away from the garden and go because we keep it going because it leaves open the potential for us to save ourselves. But we can't. We don't. The second reason is because Paul doesn't add that middle step. He doesn't talk about a human corruption or the fact that we're sick and we all choose it for ourselves. There's nothing here about choosing. There's nothing here about free will. There's nothing here about potentiality. There's nothing here about us actualizing it for ourselves. Those are all words we can make up to try to make it feel better, but it's not what he says. Instead, look through the verses. Something happened then that affects us now. There's no middle step in between. 15a, many died through one man's trespass. 16b, judgment following one trespass. That one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17a, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. There's no actualizing. 18a, the trespass of one led to the condemnation for all. Well, that sounds unfair. Let's just stick with what Paul's saying. 19a, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You can compare that with 1 Corinthians 15:22. Four easy words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. In Adam, all die. Not in Adam, all have the potential to die. We know this to be true. None of us walk around going, oh, I hope my four-year-old, I think still a perfect track record. Hopefully this kid lives forever. Now, some parents may have that sort of hazy view of their own children, but the rest of us are like, that kid's a sinner. So, just telling you. <laughs> so, the first reason why we know is because he's using this grammatical parallel language. Any other way to understand it breaks that parallel, I think. The second reason is because he doesn't include a middle step. He just keeps hammering again and again and again. Something happened in the garden, it affects all of us. The death came because of one thing that happened then. Number three, that middle step doesn't really solve anything. It doesn't really solve anything. Now, we think it does at first. We go, man, it's unfair if Adam sinned and we're all counted guilty because of his sin. That's not fair. It has to be that Adam sinned, we all have the potential to sin, and then we actualize it. But that doesn't fix it because not one person ever does not actualize that sin. It doesn't really get, get us out of the unfairness. Why should I inherit something that somebody else did? Especially in this COVID era, the season, I know that in our frustrated hearts it's difficult when you know that person <coughs> didn't, just <coughs> and then you got sick. They should have stayed home. They shouldn't have been carrying it around. They knew they were kind of spreaders. That kind of makes you upset, right? Like, I wouldn't be sick right now if that person didn't cough in front of my face. You can pin it to somebody else. So is it really getting us out of it if we say, well, Adam sinned and therefore all of us have the virus? Why should I have the virus? A virus that makes me do it. I'm bound to this because of that virus. None of us gets out of it. Now, there are theologians, and the, some of them in the Methodist tradition, Wesleyan tradition, that believe we have that potential, but even they admit, but none of us do it. <laughs> I think that's correct. But at the end of the story, at the end of the day, However you believe we got there, Orthodox Christianity reads the Bible for what it says, not just this passage, none are righteous. 
all of our righteous acts, the things we try to do that are good, they're like filthy rags to God. Why? Because they come from broken, crooked, crooked hearts. We don't really mean that to be God-glorifying. We did that good act because we're still glorifying ourselves. I don't know, that's a hard pill to swallow, but Scripture is clear on that. And he just made that clear in the first four and a half chapters. Not any of us can say, not me. No wrath for me. I've never done anything wrong. No, we all do something wrong. So it doesn't get us out of it. You have this broken, sinful nature because somebody, so of something that somebody else did. And so that unfair feeling is just removed half a step, but it's not really taken care of. It still seems unfair. Fourth, and I think this is a, a strong one. We're going back to grammar. Greek is, a, even though it's very old, it's a very precise language. And he says that in, uh, in, in verse 12, he said, death spread to all men because all sinned. He, he could have said, very easily, he could have said, death spread to all men because all will sin. He could have said, death spread to all because all do eventually sin. He could have even just said, all do sin, present tense. You know you sin, I know I sin, we all sin, and that's why death is here. Sinned. I mean, there, there's no other way to translate it. It's, it's past tense as in a historical fact. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on this, he, he says this. He says, it's a simple historical sense expressing momentary action in past time. Not they do sin, they have sin, not that they're accustomed to sinning, but they did sin then in the garden. So some of us got bored in school when they were teaching us grammar, but it's important. It's important because he is careful with his language and he's keeping that past tense to match the past tense of what Adam did. And he's transporting our action there, there in the past. He doesn't mean sin past tense when you were two, sin past tense yesterday. He means sin past tense in Adam's situation. Fifth reason, and these will be a little bit quicker. If we understand this to mean, no, no, he doesn't mean we sinned in the garden. He means that we just personally, individually on our own sin. That breaks the analogy between Adam and Christ. If you want Christ's righteousness, even though you weren't there, you need to recognize you were guilty in the garden even though you weren't there. If you, if you change what happened in the garden, you change what happens on Calvary. And we're going to see in a few minutes, you don't want to do that. If we change the bad news, oops, you lost the good news. Good luck with your potentiality. Good luck with not actualizing death for yourself. And we're going to get to that in a moment. I think that's the key point. But quickly, number six. It's just not true that we die because of, we, because of our personal sin. Babies sometimes die. What do you point to in the baby's life? They can't vocalize, mine, no. But what do you point to in the life of the baby where you say, ah, they actualized it? Death is so universal so far sweeping, so inescapable. Paul's saying is, Paul, what Paul's saying is you can't pin it to individual actions in your own life. 
That's not universal enough. It's so universal, it's so broad sweeping, it affects every single soul because every single soul already is in a position of guilt. Not because they sinned in the crib, but because they sinned in a sense in the garden. That's hard. It seems clear that's what he's saying. And now in verse 13 or 14, this is the seventh point, and we're going to unpack those verses really quickly. But the force of verses 13 and 14 really only makes sense on the, on the inherited guilt, the imputed guilt. Those are kind of big words. But the guilt that happened to us in the garden, 13 and 14 really only makes sense if you see it that way. But if you see it as individual action, potential stuff, then 13 and 14 don't make sense. So here's what 13 and 14 say. Basically, he's using 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14, to prove the idea that all died on account of Adam. He's trying to prove it. And so he says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Here's the problem. If you read what he's saying on the face of it, it looks like he's saying, after Adam, God gave him a clear law. Don't eat from this tree. Clear law. When is the next time God gave people clear laws? Sinai, Ten Commandments, Moses. In between Adam and Moses, all these people that died, the people that were punished at the Tower of Babel, the people that were punished in the flood of Genesis, what, what, what did they transgress? What law did they break? They didn't have the tree in front of them anymore. No one else bit the fruit but Adam and Eve. They didn't have God's laws yet on Mount Sinai. So that in between time, Paul, got you, got you now. And he's like, no, no. Now here's what he could say. He could say, remember back in chapter 2, I told you, we all disobey natural law. You see the mountains, you know there's a creator and you still don't want him. He could say we all break the law that's written on our hearts, which he also made clear in Romans. But the reason why he doesn't do that is because that's still pinpointing death to an action that you made, that you chose. You're, you're pinning it to an action when you actualize that death. And he's like, that's not how it works. I've got to take you back further. I've got to take you down deeper. It's not just because you saw nature and still didn't want God. It's not just because when you stole that pack of gum, even though you didn't grow up in church, you had a sense that that's not right to take gum from somebody. You're supposed to pay for that. You're not a Christian. You didn't grow up in church, but you still knew that was wrong. That's a work of the law written on your heart. But that's not when death happened to you. He goes underneath that to say, even in that in-between time where people didn't have clear exposure to God's rules, they were still guilty not because of a specific action of rebellion, but because of the action that they already partook of in the garden. See, 13 and 14 only works if you see 12 that way. Otherwise, 13 and 14 just increase the unfairness. And that applies to babies as well, because babies are also in that category of a person who is not exposed to laws. They don't understand right and wrong yet. It's a baby. And we can debate when that age hits where they understand enough to sin on their own. But we understand that death hits even before a baby, quote-unquote, actualizes 
their guilt. So in verse 13 and 14, he's like, yeah, there was a period of time there where there wasn't no law, and sin didn't count where there was no law. Now, count doesn't mean sin didn't matter. This, this is key. He doesn't mean after Adam, but before Moses, everybody that sinned, eh, those sins didn't count. By count, he means reckoned. Reckoned against you in the way that it was for Adam. So Adam knew clearly not to bite that fruit, and he did it anyway. And that sin counted against your record, mine included. Now, the individual sins that happen outside of law, those individual sins aren't what count against you in the end. They do matter. They do matter. But the reason why we are estranged from God, the reason why we don't have life, even though he's life, is because we have this wall between us and the source of life. And therefore, the only natural result is death. And the reason why death affects all of us is not because we sin individually. It's because we all corporately sinned then in the garden. That's hard, but that's what he means by counted. You can use the word imputed. Not because of something that is directly corresponding to your specific action, but someone else's action, and it's put to your account. That's what imputation means. It's put on your account. I know that seems unfair, and I know that seems really difficult, but we need that to be true. Here's why. The end of verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, they didn't have that clear law. But that transgression of Adam is still counts to them. And then comma, Adam, comma, who was a type of the one who was to come. And what Paul is doing is when you understand how the bad news happened, now you're ready to understand how the good news happened because Adam is the prototype of Jesus. Jesus is Adam 2.0. We need another Adam. The first Adam messed it up for all of us. That's true. And in that first Adam, we, in a sense, participated in this rebellion. Now, that's not Paul saying you actually were there. Just like he's not going to say you actually were at Calvary. What he is saying is there was an imputation, something put to your account, because somehow corporately we were all there in the sin. And the reason why it's set up that way is so that the solution can work the same way. You weren't at Calvary. You didn't bear stripes. You weren't take, your beard wasn't plucked out. Guards didn't roll dice over your robe. Someone else did that for you. And when you place your faith in that someone else, all that righteousness, all that goodness is imputed to your account. And what was already in your account, that gets deleted. That got put into Jesus' account. He takes your bad credit. You get his perfect credit score. Is that fair? That's not fair. But we need that to be true because there's no other way out. And unless in our depraved minds we think, man, if, if Adam had just hung in there, I wouldn't have bit the fruit. I don't think that's reading the Bible correctly either. The hubris we have to think that we would have withstood the temptation that Adam and Eve couldn't withstand, I think is arrogant. So Paul's saying you need to understand how that bad news worked, even though it's difficult, even though it's hard, even though it feels unfair, because that's the way that God is going to save you out of it. He's not going to wait for your potential. He's not going to wait for what you actualize. 
He's going to do it on your behalf and get you out. That's awesome. It's through the second Adam who comes and does it the right way. Just as Satan came to Eve and deceived her, Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and just went at it, didn't he? Tempting Jesus. And the New Testament tells us it's not like Jesus was like, ha ha, temptations of normal mortal man. He felt the weight of that temptation. But he set his face toward Jerusalem and he survived it on our behalf. And even though I didn't survive it, even though I could never survive it, I get that credited to my account. It only works in that unfair way. Imputation. And so as ugly as the imputation of sin is, as disastrous as the imputation of sin is, I need it to work that way because that's the only way I can get righteousness. The imputation of what somebody else did on our behalf. And so now... In verses 15 to 17, he just unpacks that parallel, that typology of Adam being this sort of first representative, this first head of the human race, and then Christ coming in to be the, the ultimate version of that, the better version of that. And so he talks about the ways in which Adam is superseded by Christ. Christ outperforms what happened in the garden. He outperforms it on Calvary. And we can be glad that they're not exactly the same. There's some discontinuity. There's a, there come some key differences of how Christ superseded Adam. So that Christ's solution supersedes the problem. Check it out quickly, verse 15. Verse 15 says that Adam's offense causes many to die, but Christ's righteousness causes many to live. He says in verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. As powerful as the sin in the garden was to entrap you, to ensnare you, to, uh, to put you in trouble, that much more was Christ's action on Calvary, his death, and then his resurrection in the grave, that much more to cover over that guilt and to remove that wrath. And then in verse 16, he talks about the benefits of what Jesus did exceed the problems of what Adam did. Why? Because even though we get condemnation from one offense, Jesus' justification covers many offenses. Check it out in verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, one sin, condemnation for everybody, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. One sin, death to everybody. One act of righteousness covers and justifies many trespasses. Not just what happened in the garden, but all of the individual things we did from the crib to this morning are covered. Garden, the sin deals with one particular sin. Jesus' death covers all of it. All of it. Nothing is left out. The secret things, the things that we're too hardened to even realize we sinned this morning. I don't think I sinned this morning. But if you really sat down and prayerfully went through your morning, you're like, oh, yeah, that probably wasn't cool. He covers the things we don't even recognize. It's so complete. And then verse 17, Christ is better than Adam because he doesn't just save us from death, but he brings us in, into eternal life. 
There's not just, okay, we can escape death. It's like we get this blessed, righteous life in Christ. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Here's the point of this passage, and he brings it home in 18 to 21. Here's the point. Just as we were condemned by the sin of one man, so are we justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're condemned in the sin of one man, but we are that much more justified by the righteousness of the new man, Jesus Christ. He reiterates that in 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And you see there, now he's casting it in the future, will be made righteous because he's recognizing we are in process. And if you're new here and you look around, you're like, I don't think everybody's that holy all up in here. We're not there yet. We're still being made, and we're still changing, and we're still trying to get rid of this nasty inclination to sin. But there will come a time where sin is behind us, and we'll be made totally righteous, and we won't be sinning anymore. And then he says in verse 20 and 21 that where guilt is compounded, compounded, God's grace covers it all the more. Even though we've sinned way beyond the garden, and we've done a lot of, in a lot of ways, we've demonstrated just how far from God we are. God's grace through Jesus Christ covers it. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. You didn't need the law to be a sinner, but when the law came in, that's just more rules to break. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He talks about life in verse 18, and then he mentions life again in verse 21, because he wants you to leave not just with the bad taste of death in your mouth, but to recognize that this death has been defeated for you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. I know many of us struggle with feelings of guilt and shame. We struggle with combing over our lives and thinking about all the ways in which really God should want nothing to do with me. Some of y'all might be in here and you're like, no, God should want something to do with me because I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I I pray that God will get you there. But I want to address those of us in here who we get it. We get that we haven't lived a perfect life. Sometimes you lie awake at night and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I should, it might be Saturday night, you're not sure whether you go to church on Sunday morning because why should, I, why should I be a Christian? If the people next to me just knew the stuff that I've done from the crib to this morning, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. And I think this passage is for you. The person who's stuck like, ah, I'm not a sinner, they, they're already, they already can't receive verse 12. It's the person who needs to understand you get life, not by going over your life, combing over it and seeing, did my good stuff outweigh the bad stuff? We all lose in that equation. But if you recognize the reason why you're stuck in a problem is not just because you sinned on Tuesday, 
The reason why you're stuck in a problem is because we all sinned in the garden. If you can swallow that difficult pill, then you can embrace the solution. And it is not because of good things you did this week that you should be in church today. It's not because of good things you can do tomorrow that you can promise God, I'll make a deal, give me a ticket to heaven, and I'll, I'll perform tomorrow. That is a weight that you cannot bear. If you realize that the problem is such that you are already born into a situation where you are already guilty, you can also recognize that when you're born again, you're reborn into a situation in which you're already righteous. And you do not have to question whether you get this life or not. That's why Paul put it in the future tense. We will be righteous. And so this idea that as soon as you sin, oops, you drop the ball of salvation, that doesn't work in the book of Romans. It does not work. Righteousness is imputed to you from somebody else. That doesn't make you perfect day to day, but it means that when God sees you, he sees Christ's righteousness on you, in you, over you. And you don't have to carry shame and guilt of yesterday's sins. We come before him as we did moments ago, and we repent and we confess. We do day to day. We do mess up and we do sin. And sometimes it's not, oops, sometimes I wanted that. And we repent. And he continues to craft us and change us. Why? Not because of our potential, but because of what Christ actually did on the cross and in his resurrection to bring us into sure life with God. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at the difficulty of the doctrine of sin as it really takes us right to the edge, right to the cusp of what we're able to really ingest and understand. We really need uh, the ministry of your Holy Spirit to help us embrace your truth. God, we thank you that it didn't stop at the bad news, that the bad news actually turned into good news, and that we have this offer in Jesus Christ to have all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame erased, expunged, thrown as far as the east is from the west, infinitely removed from our account, and not left with a blank account, but left with the righteousness of Jesus Christ all that he earned, all that he performed, all that he is put into our account. That is amazing. And we praise you for it. And we thank you for it, even now as we sing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?